0: Hey there it's Ron I'm recording this intro from my phone in a lodge in Rocky Mountain National Park right now I hope you're having as much fun this summer as me our next upcoming shows will take place on Tuesday August 8th in San Diego and Wednesday August 16th in Denver the theme will be crossing over
1: Next storyteller. right, next
0: storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the narrator's podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from Laura Bond, one of our all-time favorite storytellers and one of my favorite humans on the planet. Laura's story reminds us that when faced with a nemesis, one can stand tall on both real and imaginary mountains. Laura's story was recorded live on July nineteenth, two thousand seventeen, at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. The theme of the evening was bars.
1: So, I've spent some time in bars. I wrote about music for a living for like eight years, so it was my job to go to bars pretty much every night. Um, and I've had some experiences in bars. I I've had romantic interludes in them. I was once physically attacked by a deranged man in a bow tie. (laughs) I've never fallen off a bar stool, but I did once see three ghosts walk into the lion's lair well after closing time. I can see it clearly in my eye. They were like these crisply outlined charcoal-colored figures that came in and bellied up to the bar and just started talking shit. And... That really did happen, I I swear to God. Um, And I also, I should mention, I I dated the owner of a notorious Colfax dive bar for six years. And I won't name that bar, but I will tell you that it is popular with the charcoal-colored demon spirits from another dimension. (laughs) But I don't want to get into that too much tonight. so I started thinking about, you know, bars and different kinds of bars, and my mind went to musical bars, and then, of course, it went to 16 bars, and not because I'm a rapper, although I am, but because 16 musical bars is the unit of music that you are asked to perform um, when you're auditioning for a musical, usually. And I know this because I spent a large portion of my youth auditioning for and performing in musicals, um, from the time I was nine till I was... Fifteen, I did like eighteen plays. Uh, pretty much anything with an orphan in it or an urchin. You know, I was there, like Annie and Oliver and Avita. Sound of Music, not technically orphans or urchins, but you know, kind of fit fit the theme. So those were the good ones. But I also did, you know, like I performed in a mall with my name on my shirt, and I mimed for money. You didn't know there was money to be made in mime, but there is. Um, and it was great, but, you know, I never, I never, like, landed the leading role. Um, like most American girls who were sentient at the time of the release of the classic film of the same name, I wanted so badly to be Annie. But I never was Annie. Um, I was cast instead as, Ju- as June, at uh, June of little reputation and no lines, but it was okay. June was fine. You know, she she had a hard knock life, but she did not have her own product line. But that was okay. Theater was amazing. It was it was a true learning lab for life. And you know, I got to be around interesting, unusual, artistic adults. I met my first gay people through the theater, and you know, not just any gay people, but like fabulously gay male choreographers who wore like lime green leg warmers and could do jazz hands with conviction you know and uh, and theater also provided a very welcome respite from what had become you know, basically a totalitarian social regime at Madison Meadows School where I was in the seventh grade um, and it was you know, it was ruled by one Peggy Lindauer, which maybe you've heard of her. She was pretty notorious. Somebody laughed like they do know Peggy Lindauer. Please don't tell her I'm talking about her on stage because I'm still afraid of her. these many years later. Um, but Peggy was, um, you know, people talk about the queen bee phenomenon, you know, the mean girl. Peggy was a queen bee of many degrees more cruelty and fascination and beauty than than your average Queen Bee. She was like a like a goddess hornet or something. And, you know, she was she had blonde highlights and she could run a mile in six minutes and she could shotgun a slow-pitched softball up into the upper rafters. And she had a couple of older sisters or stepsisters who lived in California. And one of them allegedly had done it with Brett Michaels of poison. And Peggy, you know, she was only 12 years old, but she was, like, sexy. She could fill out a body glove bathing suit, and, uh, you know, for some reason, she took a shine to me, which was fortunate. So she would invite me over to her house to go swimming, and we would crank all our teachers, and we would, like, read through the personal letters that uh, belonged to... Sylvia, who was their family's Mexican live in maid, that had been written to her by her sweet boyfriend Sergio. I'm really sorry about that, Sylvia. That was really a terrible thing to do. But Peggy told me to. So, um, you know, um, Peggy, probably because of those sisters in California, she had music. She had really good music and scary music. And we would, we would ride our bikes to school just like a little pack of us and Peggy would have this silver boom box hanging over her handlebars. We'd all be wearing shades and like rolling up on the middle school just like jamming out to the cult. It was pretty badass actually it was. Um, so it was an exhilarating friendship but it was I was also cautious you know it was precarious. Um, she would just make me do these scary things like sometimes she would make me get on her handlebars and she would just tear off on these kamikaze, like, death rides around the neighborhood, like, jumping over curbs and dodging cars and stuff. I am, like, somewhat convinced she was trying to kill us both because she would do that, just, I don't know, to make a point of some kind. Um, and her affections were notoriously unpredictable. So there was this girl, Marcy Bettini, who, very nice girl, does anyone know her? Okay, good. Um, (laughs) So Marcy had been in our bicycle gang and ridden around with us and stuff, but one day she made the mistake of like curling and teasing her hair. Like back in that era, people would like curl it one up and one down, then you kind of tease it. And she did that in a way that Peggy found like irritating and, and unacceptable. So like overnight, Peggy decreed, and it was immediately accepted that Marcy, who had never, like, even held hands with a boy, was a total slut. So suddenly, Marcy was a slut, no longer our friends. And not only was she a total slut bag, she had the gall to be Italian. So Peggy, who was, like, a a really good artist, drew this picture of Marcy swimming in a bowl of spaghetti, and there was a banner over her head that said, "Um, can I suck on your noodle? And Marcy uh, changed schools the next week. So, so yeah, that kind of it was high stakes stuff. Um, but around that time, something miraculous happened to me. Um, I got a leading role. Um, I got the role of Heidi. Um, some of you may be familiar with the classic children's story of a young girl, an orphan, who uh, lives on a mountain with her kindly grandfather, and you know, like hangs out with goats and picks berries and stuff. And I, I got that part, and it was really exciting. And I was in this play with these, you know, all these adults, and uh, it was a professional theater company, so I got paid like hundred bucks a week or something. It was, it was a, a really big deal. So I started just kind of detaching a little bit from what was going on at school. I just didn't have time for it. I, I wasn't as interested, and in that um, proved to be a mistake. Um, Peggy did not like the fact that my interest had waned somewhat, um, but I, you know didn't really notice um, you know leading up to the play like a week before opening i'm sure you can appreciate i was just like really deep into Heidi shit you know i was like practicing pantomiming the goats and yodeling and stuff and uh i came to school one day and i noticed that some of my mates were just kind of giving me the cold shoulder and i saw Peggy near the lockers and she gave me this like adolescent death smirk that chilled my blood. And around this time, I had um, I had chapped lips because I was performing a lot, rehearsing a lot. I was tired. I was probably kind of stressed out. Had chapped lips, and then I developed this crack in my lower lip. So I became somewhat addicted to Carmex. So I would apply Carmex several times a day liberally like it says you're supposed to on the jar. And um, so you know, later that same day when Peggy had given me that cold stare, I saw her at recess out on the bleachers with Tammy Schnackenberg and Leanne Vincent, and they were making this like exaggerated gesture, you know, like someone uh, in a ridiculous way applying medicated lip balm. And then somebody walked by me later, and they like made this weird noise, like, Car Max, And I knew I was fucked. But I had the play, so I just put my head down at school, because at night at rehearsal, and soon when the play opened, I had Bud, my grandfather, who was this... You know, kindly old man. He had blue twinkling eyes and a long beard. And, you know, he'd look like a guy who would live basically alone on top of a mountain. And my mother told me years later that Bud, in fact, lived in his car. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we just got to make believe. and, and, And it was a great time. And, you know, I was getting paid before long after the show opened. So I was, like, dropping a lot of cash at Dairy Queen. And, you know, I got my picture in the paper. And things were good. Um, until my school decided to come to the play. And not the entire school, just the seventh grade, and not the entire seventh grade, just the class that Peggy was in, and Tammy Schnackenberg, and fucking Leanne Vincent. (laughs) And also, by the way, Mark Lawrence, who was somebody just, you know, always out of... Any kind of consideration for me, you know I, I kind of in my school life, like my theater life up until this point um, i didn't go to the same or I, I didn't live in the same neighborhood that the kids around me did. It was a really wealthy part of town we didn't live there. My parents just got us into the school somehow, so we uh you know we didn't have like the same tokens of status that a lot of people had we didn't even really know what they were we didn't belong to the country club we didn't go skiing, stuff like that um, so people like Mark Lawrence just were not, I just wasn't eligible for them. You know, he was like, a, like an adolescent George Clooney. He had big brown eyes and kind of this elegant mercurial style. And, you know, my heart beat for him, definitely, but he just was not someone I could consider. Um, but there he was in the play with Peggy and Tammy and Leanne. So the play started, and it was going It was going okay, actually. That The whole cast knew what was going on with my school and stuff, so they were, like, extra thespian that day, and, like, the energy was really high, and um, I kind of figured out where Peggy was sitting, and, you know, I just didn't really look over there, and, certain, you know, lines were hitting when they were supposed to, and people were laughing when they were supposed to, emoting when they were supposed to, and I heard, like, a couple little snickers coming from over in Peggy's direction, but... You know, I actually started to feel like, you know what? They're on my turf. This is my mountain. And I'm motherfucking Heidi, and they are not. And, like, it's cool. I don't, I don't even care that they're here. So everything was going fine for the first half. It was only one act, kind of like a big, long play, one long thing. And it went fine. But about the time, like the midpoint in the show, I really had to pee because, you know, I had been nervous. I was on stage the whole time. I was like pounding Capri Sun backstage because that's just what you do when you're nervous, like tonight. And uh, so I had this scene. It was, it was a tricky thing. It was always tricky. Um, I had to exit the stage, go out through the crowd, through the doors, down flight of stairs, through the lobby, run around, through a door, up some stairs, uh, you know, through the backstage, out to the stage, and re-enter the show. And it was always tight, but I always made it. Um, But this glorious day in May, with all my classmates present, uh, you know, I took off, through the crowd, out the door, down the stairs, through the lobby, other door, up the stairs, into the backstage, almost to the stage, and then I peed my later hosen and all over my like flesh colored tights and my clogs, and, like right next to the prop table. My mom was there, she was always there backstage, and she froze for a second and then she just snapped into action and she slipped me out of the lower portions of my costume and she brought me this like giant red and green plaid like basically a hoop skirt that Heidi normally wears in the finale, like the final scene which is at Christmas uh, whereas the scene that I was entering was set like a train station or something Um, but I got it on and I made it out onto the stage somehow and I was shaky and you know, I was basically drawing the only conclusion one could draw, which was that my life had, in fact, ended, and that I was doomed to spend all of eternity, you know, like, smelling like pee, uh, performing in this ridiculous dress in front of, you know, Peggy and Leanne and Tammy and Mark Lawrence, of course. Um, But I did not die, in fact. I didn't go to school for a week. Um, but when I did go back, uh, I was in the office. So I was checking, checking in, going through that stuff. And I turned to go, and who was standing there but Mark Lawrence. And he said, you were pretty good. I thought you were funny. Although it was not a particularly comic performance, I <laughs> took it. You know, and I don't know if his comment was motivated by that kind of, like, deep pity you sometimes feel for the damned. I did not care, because he said it to me. And uh, it wasn't long before, you know, the show ended. And so did the school year, and the summer came and went. And I decided not to move to Ohio, which at one point was the plan. After that incident, but um, miraculously, Peggy moved to California, presumably to be closer to her stepsisters and Brett Michaels. And, uh, you know, I still carry a piece of Heidi in my heart. And um, sometimes when I need a little boost, I'll just like channel Heidi and yodel to myself and, you know, just send a little prayer out to all those little girls who've ever had a dream and a nemesis with the knowledge that you know, you just stand tall on your mountain and someday that bitch is going to move. Thank you.
0: That's Laura Bond, everybody. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.